Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you for the privilege we have of knowing you in a personal way. And Lord, we just thank you that we have been given a commission by you to share the message of the love of Jesus Christ with a world who is alienated from him. We pray, Heavenly Father, for each and every need that we have in our personal lives as we are met together tonight. We pray by your Spirit that those needs might be met and that we might be those that will learn to communicate our faith to others better so that we might bring many more, not only to know Jesus Christ in a personal way, but to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Jesus Christ. We pray that we will have skill and expertise in these things. We'll give you the praise in Christ's name. Amen. Now, we are entering tonight in a new phase of a study that's taken us uh, something over a year, and um, we have done some adventuring in the subject of discipleship, mathetes, and uh, we uh, want tonight, before we do anything else, to just quickly give you, uh, those of you that may be first-timers with us tonight in this series, give you kind of an overview of where we've been. May I just say to you that if you uh, haven't gotten them already, there's a complete set of notes uh, for both our studies in, on discipleship in the Gospels, discipleship in the book of Acts, and they're available to you. I don't know how many copies Mr. Peebles has, but we'll make sure that, uh, that we have them week by week and have enough sets available so you can have that whole set. And we're going into the third phase of this study tonight. And uh, it really has been an exciting time. And so we'll just kind of go over this very briefly and uh, kind of give you an idea of where we've been. We, uh, first of all, saw a definition of discipleship. And after studying through the meaning of the words and uh, the various ways that it was expressed in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, we came to uh, this definition that a disciple of Jesus is one who is a follower of Jesus, a learner from him, his apprentice, whose conduct, philosophy, and way of life are completely identified with Jesus, who is continuously instructed by Jesus, and who is consistently involved for Jesus. Now that basically is what it is to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. We then turned to the matter of the difference between the discipleship of Christ and any other kind of discipleship uh, that has been given to us, particularly as it was given in the Gospels. We saw that Christ's discipleship was superior to the discipleship of Moses, superior to the discipleship of the Pharisees, and even superior to that very fine discipleship of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, of course, had... Uh, a fine group of men who called themselves the disciples of John. And even later on in the book of Acts, Paul encountered a group of those that were still considering themselves the disciples of John, showing the, the wide outreach that John the Baptist really had. And we saw that his, the superiority of uh, the discipleship of the Lord Jesus Christ was really along four lines. First of all, he was superior as revealed in the, aton in, in the atonement as Savior. That is, the basis for discipleship was a personal relationship with Jesus Christ who could save. In the other kinds of discipleship, the men could only garner followers. They could not in any way save those that followed them. Secondly, his superiority was revealed in the authority he had as teacher. Remember, he taught not as the scribes but taught as one having authority, that is, supreme authority. And that's the rule for discipleship. And then we saw superiority revealed in his association as friend. That was the privilege of discipleship. The Lord Jesus Christ had a, a, a closeness, a kinship with those that were his followers, unlike so many others that remained aloof from their followers. And then fourthly, he had superiority revealed in his activity as bridegroom. You remember that the Lord Jesus Christ was called by John the Baptist the bridegroom. 
And John the Baptist said, I'm just the best man. Nobody honors the best man on the day of the wedding. They honor the bridegroom. And so therefore, he clearly taught that the discipleship of the Lord Jesus Christ was far superior to his own discipleship. That, of course, is the hope of discipleship. We have those four things then. The basis of discipleship, the rule of discipleship, the privilege of discipleship, and the hope of discipleship. So there was a vast difference between being a disciple of the Lord Jesus and being a disciple of anyone else. Again, I stress to you that if you're talking about discipleship, don't make the mistake that a lot of people are making today in gathering disciples to you. Paul Steele should not have any disciples. But I should be involved in discipleship, that is, discipling others to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if I can be an example, so like Paul, we can call upon people to follow us as we follow Christ, then that is legitimate. But we are not in any way to garner followers for ourselves. We are to make followers of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And then we turn to five passages that unfolded the demands of discipleship. With them, there were some dividends of discipleship that were revealed to us as well. And after we did that, we turned to the matter of the distinctives of discipleship. We saw there were three distinctive marks of discipleship. John chapter 8, continuance in the Word of God. And then John chapter 13, love for one another. And then John chapter 15, bearing much fruit. Those were the marks of discipleship. And then discipleship, its dividends, was given to us both the earthly and the eternal compensation that was promised to the disciple. We talked about the discipleship, its development, and showed how in the relationship that the disciples had uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ, they went through three stages. The first was the servant-master relationship where the focus was on obedience. Christ said it, they did it, just because they were servants and he was the master. Then they moved into that family relationship where Christ said, look, these are my brethren and, and, and my, my sisters. These are the ones that have a, a close, intimate family relationship with me. And the focus there was on family likeness. And then we talked about the fact that he finally, at the end of his ministry, said to the disciples that there was to be a friend-to-friend -friend relationship, a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. The idea of being a focus on intimacy. He said, you remember, I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. Because a servant hasn't been given the inside dope on what the master wants. But the friend is on the same wavelength. He is compatible with him. He thinks like his master. And therefore, there is a relationship of friendship that supersedes the other relationships. And then finally we, in our study in the Gospels, talked about discipleship, its design. We went to the Sermon on the Mount and we showed how in the matter of discipleship there are both horizontal and vertical relationships that have to be established. So that was our study in the Gospels. Then we went to the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts we saw that the disciples of Christ enjoyed phenomenal success in discipling all nations. And we tried to tap the resource from the book of Acts, particularly in passages that dealt with the word disciple, where the, where the uh, word disciple or disciples uh, was mentioned specifically. And we focused some attention upon those passages of Scripture, and we saw how uh, th this was spelled out in terms of the early church. We saw the relationship of the Spirit of God and the disciple the relationship of salvation and the disciple, soul winning and the disciple, service and the disciple, stewardship and the disciple, separation and the disciple, um, society and the disciple, steadfastness and the disciple, schism, division and the disciple, suffering and the disciple, and finally strife and the disciple. So we went through all of those. Now all of that's in your notes and uh, we really invite you to, to review those notes because uh, I believe it will give you something of a basis for what we're going on to now. In this final phase of this particular study, we want to present a practical philosophy of discipleship. We want to, to take you, if we can, and train you and teach you 
as to how you might use scriptural tools to bring a person to a knowledge of Jesus Christ, or having brought them to a knowledge of Jesus Christ, that you are able to bring them to a certain level of maturity. Now, there are degrees of maturity, and it depends, of course, on the individual, how he responds to assignments giving, given and all of that. But we want to do everything we can to give you some tools. We don't expect you to use them verbatim. In fact, I would hope you wouldn't. I would hope that you become extremely creative and that you would take the tools that we give you and revise them so that they're kind of in your own words. And so you can sit over lunch with that friend that you're trying to bring to a measure of maturity and uh, take a napkin from the table uh, if, it's a cloth, if it's not a cloth napkin, if it's a paper napkin, otherwise carry a piece of paper with you. And uh, uh, take, a, take a pen and, and sketch out a little outline uh, and spend an hour with that person trying to convey several concepts to him. Actually, ten things, ten areas that we'll want to cover. We're going to, first of all, in our study beginning tonight we're going to cover several introductory items. That is, some things that become a part of a basic philosophy. And then we're going to give to you, in, in hopefully ten weeks, um, give you ten um, appointments that you could have with a person and how to take him, if you please, from A to Z in the Christian life. Now, you can't, of course, cover everything, but it gives you some of the basic things that a person needs to know. He needs to know and understand his relationship with the church, as an example. He needs to know how to have assurance of salvation. I'm not giving these in order. I'm just throwing them out to you. Uh, he needs to know how to study God's Word. Uh, he needs to have some understanding as to the importance of fellowship and the relationship with other people. These are some of the things that we'll be covering, and we will not be covering them in depth. I apologize for that. Uh, you know how I like to cover things in depth. But what we want to do is give to, give to you the basic tool and then hope with the scriptures that we give you and so on that you'll be able to build on that. And we'll spend the time giving you that tool, spending as much time as we have to kind of outline it for you uh, so that you can kind of put it in your own words and use it with that person. I think we've covered some very vital things in these sessions ahead. And so we want to get started tonight. And the way we want to do it is by starting with three verses of Scripture that we've touched on before, and I think we just need to be reminded of continually. Three verses of Scripture that will give us the beginning of a basis for a philosophy of discipleship. I want you to turn with me to Mark chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Mark chapter 3. Once again, let me stress to you that we are going to be somewhat superficial uh, compared to what we usually do in presenting some of this material. I am basing much of what I say on the previous studies that we have done. And so therefore we won't spend a lot of time exegeting the text. Uh, in some cases we will, but in most cases we won't, but rather just simply giving you something of a basis. Mark chapter 3 verses 14 and 15 says this, And he appointed twelve that they should be with him, and that he might send them forth to preach, and to have authority to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. Now there are two things that I want to draw from that. First of all, I want you to understand that discipleship involves a commitment of time. The Lord Jesus Christ, in discipling men, spent time with them. Now, it's probably not practical, especially if you're married, uh, to spend night and day with the disciples of the Lord Jesus that you are seeking to disciple to him, um, as he did. But the point is this, that Christ had three and a half years of earthly ministry. And during those three and a half years, he had a specific job to do. He had to train these men because they would become the leaders of the church after his ascension to the Father. And he had a tremendous job to get this uh, rather motley crew of men shaped up in a hurry. And so his was really a crash program. And he was willing 
to spend the time to concentrate on the ministry of a few men because he understood the ministry of multiplication. I think there are a lot of people who understand that uh, church, the church is to reach souls and they understand something concerning training, equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. But they don't really understand the value of the process of multiplication. I would say that it, in all likelihood, if you took a person, one person, and led him to Christ and discipled him properly, that it would be approximately three to five years before you would see the real evident fruit of that discipleship. And that's just too slow for most of us. We want shortcuts. We want to hurry up the process. We want to see that person reproductive and productive for God immediately after he's accepted Christ as Savior. In some cases, that may happen. But it's not likely, so don't get discouraged. The Lord Jesus Christ had 12 men. He lost one of them altogether, Judas. He never did become a follower of Christ in his true sense. He almost lost the rest of them. It sure looked like he was going to there at the cross. The only one that followed, followed afar off, and that was John. Peter warmed his, fire, his hands at the fire of the enemy. The others had fled. It was only after the resurrection they began to, uh, to take their heart back in their teeth and go. And uh, it took 40 days of the Lord's ministry to them to really inspire them. And then the filling of the Holy Spirit after that to empower them. And uh, they finally turned the world upside down. Or I don't like that term. I think they turned it right side up. It's just from the world's viewpoint. They said it was upside down. From God's viewpoint, it was right side up. But in any event, they were men who were, who were worked with by the Lord Jesus Christ over a period of three years. And even then, by the world's standards, his ministry could be considered a failure. And yet, you're a Christian today because the process did not fail. And we have to realize that even though the process is time-consuming and over a period of time may not seem to be as productive as we'd like, nevertheless, this is God's way to bring maturity to the body of Christ. Individual discipleship, working with a handful, a few people, building into their lives, pouring your life into theirs, so that they can be brought to maturity in Christ. Now, this is to augment any kind of public ministry or the ministry of the church, per se, as a local congregation. That is to augment that. There's a place for public ministry, but there's also that place for private ministry. And you need to be involved with a few, with as many as God gives you, maybe as many as 12. But then, on the other hand, maybe just one. And if all of us that are in this room today would do this in three to five years, we would see our numbers multiplied. See? It's a matter of whether or not you're willing to pay that price. Christ was. The second thing that we draw out of Mark chapter 3 is that disciple, discipleship involves a commitment of purpose. There's a goal to discipleship. Christ wanted these men to be with them for a purpose that he might send them forth. And you have to get into your very soul the fact that that is our purpose in discipleship as well. That we do not disciple people for the sake of saying how many disciples we have. Or for the sake of, uh, of just accomplishing some nebulous purpose. Our purpose is to reproduce reproducers. Win people to Christ, bring them to maturity in Christ so they can win people to Christ and bring them to maturity in Christ so that they can win people to Christ and bring them to maturity in Christ and on and on the process goes. That's the principle of multiplication. Christ called the disciples to him so that they might be with him and that he might send them forth. Let's be that kind of a discipler. And then over in Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18. Now, this is a very familiar passage of Scripture, but let's get the perspective here. In verse 16, we have the men. And then, in beginning in verse 18, we have the mandate. The men, 
the eleven disciples went away into Galilee in the mountain where Jesus had appointed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. See, he still hadn't fully gotten their confidence at this point in the game. Those were the men. They were kind of a mixed bunch. They were eleven disciples, one short of what they had had in, their earthly, in the inner earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus. They were obedient to him and going to the mountain where he had pointed them. When they saw him, they worshipped, but they still had some doubting individuals in the group. The mandate comes in verse 18. Jesus came and spoke unto them, saying, All authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. I'll come back to that word teach in a minute. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Amen. Now, there are four things here. First of all, the power. All authority is given unto me. Exousia is the Greek word, meaning absolute authority. Christ is transferring, delegating, if you please, authority to these men. Secondly is the program. Now, it's that program that we have to focus upon for a minute. You look at the text, and it says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations. Most people assume, on the basis of the way it's written in the King James Bible, that the main verb must be go. And so we sing songs like go, give, and pray. There is no indication that the Lord ever commanded the disciples to go. I don't like to spoil all those good missionary messages. He never commanded them to go. He assumed they would go. He used a participle here. What it is saying is, as you are going. I've heard missionaries wax eloquent sometimes, saying, this verse says go, and if you haven't gone to a foreign mission field, you haven't fulfilled the Great Commission. That's not the point. Christ was saying you're going somewhere, sometime. Every one of you are going. You're going to work tomorrow. You're going to come home afterward. You're going down the street. You're going on vacation. I hear people say all the time, I'm going on vacation. You're going. All the time you're going. Everybody's going. All the time. So therefore, Christ says, in the process of going, there's a job to do. That's the whole point of the text. We miss the point by emphasizing go, and it's because the, the participle isn't properly translated here. As you are going, here's the main verb. And what is it? It is the word... Mathetuo, from mathetes, which is the word for disciple. As you are in the process of going, be busy discipling people. So I would change that missionary message to say this, not you haven't fulfilled the great commission if you haven't gone. I would say this, you have not fulfilled the Great Commission if you are not involved in discipleship. It's as simple as that. The word isn't teach at all, but rather make disciples. What is making disciples? I'll give it to you again. A disciple of Jesus is one who is a follower of Jesus, a learner from him, his apprentice whose conduct, philosophy, and way of life are completely identified with Jesus who is constantly instructed by Jesus, and who is consistently involved for Jesus. And we are to be in the business of making people do that. That is God's program. Now the process is given to us as well. For it says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That, of course, is the visible witness of their faith in Jesus Christ. And then teaching them. Different word for teaching. This does mean teaching. Systematic teaching. Now, really, didaskalos, which is the word that is employed here, means systematic teaching. It means to have a plan and to, to execute that plan systematically. And that, of course, is why we're giving you these weeks on this matter of how to actually let the rubber meet the road and accomplish the purpose that you have in discipleship. We want to give you how-to tools so you know what to say when you sit down with a person instead of just sitting down and going, what does a guy say, you know? 
And I know, I've been in your shoes, I know exactly what you think and what you go through. And, and it's so much of this business of, of where do I go from here? And you kind of stumble your way through the first session and he asks a few questions, but you ask yourself what's going to happen next time if he doesn't ask any questions. It's not that you don't know the Bible. It's just that you never sat down and really thought through what will I do in the first session with him to try to bring him to a level of maturity? What kind of assignments can I give him? And then what will I do in the second session and the third and the fourth? And that's why a lot of people are not fulfilling the Great Commission. Nobody's ever told them how. Now, I don't claim to be an expert. I stumbled all my life. And the beautiful thing is that, that uh, over a period of time I learned a few things, you know. And uh, it's, that's in spite of me, not because of me. The Lord was gracious. And we've had the privilege of, of helping people along these lines. We've tried to compile some of those thoughts and, and uh, bring together some things that I think will be helpful to you. But this process is God's way. And so we want to do it systematically. And then there's the promise, and lo, I'm with you always. Now, don't ever be afraid that you're alone in that discipleship session. Not only do you have an object to point them to, but you have a companion with you. Jesus Christ promised, lo, I am with you always, even on to the end of the age. And so, therefore, we need to realize that his presence is with us. So, that's the mandate that is given to us here. Now, that's the second passage. The third passage is 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. You've been saturated with that, I realize, but that's all right. Let's turn to it once more. 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. Here we have a bunch of imperatives, a good many imperatives in this text. He's commanded to do a number of things. And among them, and very high on the list of priority, is verse 2, where it says, The things that thou hast heard from me among many witnesses, the same commit thou, entrust thou. The, the word actually uh, is, comes from, from two words, tathime, which means actually to place, and para, the preposition, which means, to, means near, actually. So therefore, it's the idea of placing near. It was a word that was used many times to describe one who would place something on deposit for protection and safekeeping. The idea was to entrust something. And so therefore, it says entrust these things to faithful men. And why? Who shall be able, that is, to be capable, to be qualified. Hikonoi is the word, and it means to be qualified. Now, you qualify a person by training him. And so, therefore, it's a person that you have trained, faithful men who shall be qualified. They're, usually, when the word able is found in the New Testament, it is the word dunamis or power. It's the idea of having the power to, but the, there's a different word that is used here. It's the idea of being qualified or being made qualified. So, the, the process of training is involved here. You commit these things to faithful men who then will be qualified to teach others, and there's the word didasco again, to teach others. And the, the, the verb here carries with it that constant, constant tense, the idea of teach others, to 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 teach others. And you're here tonight because somebody did that. They may not have done it as thoroughly as God would have it done, uh, because uh, there have been lapses in the church of Jesus Christ, but somebody did that. If every Christian has been, had been doing that, every faithful man had been equipped so that he could teach other faithful men, so that they could teach other faithful men, then there would be many, many more believers in the world than there are today. But the problem is that we fall down in this very thing. We do not follow through in this ministry of multiplication. And so therefore, it's the concept of over and over doing it. And I like to relate the next verse to this, even though uh, there are some that would disjoint it here. 
It says, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. It is not an easy task. It's going to be uphill. And we have to be like soldiers in warfare. And therefore, we have to be ready for the battle. And then, of course, it involves something else too. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. You've got to get your priorities straight. You cannot properly disciple people unless your priorities are straight and unless you're willing to invest the time, the energy, the heartache, and everything else that is involved in the matter of discipleship. And then it goes on and talks about the athlete and the farmer and the ultimate fruit and all of that. A tremendous passage of Scripture. Don't ever forget that central message, though. The things that thou hast heard from me among many, faith, many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others, to teach others, to teach others, to teach others. Now the concept then of each believer being involved in discipleship on some level is thoroughly biblical. That should be a part of your frame of reference. Now we live in a day and age when people are depersonalized. Individuality has largely been lost. Of course, a lot of people are having today what's called an identity crisis. Inherent in a man is a knowledge that he is an individual. He looks around. He sees that not everybody looks like everybody else, that there are distinguishing features. He recognizes, according to the standard of society, whether he is good-looking or whether he's bad-looking, whether he's uh, handsome or whether he's ugly, uh, whether a woman is beautiful or whether she is considered uh, plain. Um, you never consider a woman ugly. You just consider her plain. Uh, but uh, the, everybody has this inner knowledge that, uh, uh, that, that they are individuals, that there's no one else quite like them. Then they begin to examine their feelings and they realize no one else exactly feels the same as they do. They find a few close friends with which they have in, uh, where they have a lot in common, but they also find that even with those close friends that there is still the individuality. Then all of a sudden we become a computer number. And they punch us out, and there's loss of individuality. And everybody faces this tremendous identity crisis. Now I want to say something. We today, as Christians, if we can recapture, as Scripture seeks to do, the value of the individual, then the world will beat a path to our door. If they know that when they walk through the doors of this place, that we are interested in them as real people, as individuals, not as just part of a mass, but an individual person. If we can do that, then people will beg us to let them come. It is that that draws them to these cults. Now you just study it. And I've been doing an awful lot of study in these days on what is making these cults tick. Why is it that masses of people would follow an idiot like Jim Jones? Well, we know it's satanic. That's part of it. But that's not all. The one common denominator all the way across the board is that these cults at least begin by taking them out of a depersonalized society and bringing them into a place where there is individual concern. Phony concern. Faked in many cases. But these people are so hungry and starved for someone to say, I like you as you are, as an individual, that they will follow even the false voice. And we live in this depersonalized society. And you know what happens? The church of Jesus Christ, in this day and age, continues to make the mistake of placing all of their spiritual muscle in the area of mass evangelism. You realize that the Moonies, that the Jehovah's Witnesses, that the Jim Jones people, the People's Temple group, that the uh, Herr Kirshner, that all of these groups, 
are multiplying at a massive rate and the way they're doing it is by simply telling people you're an individual, I'll work with you personally. It is not mass evangelism. Now, I want you to understand, I'm not against mass evangelism. I am unalterably opposed to all of our emphasis being mass evangelism. Billy Graham's doing a great work. Luis Palau's doing a great work. Yes, people are saved. And those groups are recognizing more and more that the work that is done publicly is a small part compared to the individual personal counseling that is done and the follow-up. And Billy Graham himself said recently that the biggest, the biggest uh, loss that they have is because of a lack of individual and personal follow-up. And he's concerned about it. They're not sure what they can do. We live in this depersonalized society where people are crying for, for some identity, for some regaining of individual interest. And you see, the mass evangelism is good. And obviously, the teaching ministry of the local church is a public teaching ministry. And that's good. And that's right. And that's the way to equip the saints for the work of the ministry is public teaching. Pastor-teacher. But much of the cultivating of the soil of a new believer and bringing him to a measure of, of, of fullness of the stature of Christ is in the area of personal and individual need. And there has to be a mass within the church who are involved in meeting these individual needs. And that's where discipleship really is involved. Now, it's important, again, to realize that the New Testament places stress upon that individual contact. And that's not all that it places stress on. Peter preached the message, mass evangelism, correct? On the day of Pentecost. And there were 3,000 people that came to Jesus Christ. Just a short time later, 5,000 more. But if you check closely, you see the scurrying around of the 120 on the day of Pentecost talking individually with a good many of those converts. There were many, many opportunities to build into the lives of that group of people. And they were taught from the very beginning the principle of discipleship. Now much of the ministry of Christ and Peter and Paul was to the masses. But there was always an emphasis on individual contacts. Now let's take the ministry of Jesus Christ as an example. You notice that Christ is here at the center of this concentric circle and that it's like throwing a rock in the middle of, of a lake. The circles move outwardly and of course if you've ever done that you know that the largest the largest wave is caused within the tiny circle and then it becomes gradually lessened as it reaches to the outside. This is true of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. He concentrated on certain areas. And as I have it here, his areas of concentration were Peter and James and John and then outside that the twelve. And outside that, there were special individual contacts. The woman at the well, Zacchaeus, and some others. And then the masses were also touched. I want you to realize that this outer circle is no less important than the inner circle. They were real people. They had individual needs. But Christ recognized that in three and a half years' ministry, he could only touch solidly the few and therefore he placed his emphasis on the few with a widening, widening circle and only a lesser emphasis on the masses. We should never be seeking for the masses as our primary emphasis. Those masses are important. We want to reach them. We want to do everything we can for them. But it is not where the emphasis of the church should be. The emphasis should be as much as possible upon the individual. And of course, that takes a lot of people being involved. The failure of the church has been because the church 
by and large, has not emphasized equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. They have left this kind of thing to the clergy, so the job's never been done. What we want to do is renew an interest in that very thing. So let's take the example of the ministry of Christ now for a moment. Early in his ministry, he concentrated on 12 men. That was where a great deal of his concentration came. The calling of these men is recorded, of course, in the fourth chapter of Matthew, the first chapter of Mark, the first chapter of John, fifth chapter of, of Luke. Now, admittedly, in those calling of those disciples, some were called at that time and others were called later. And it depends on the account and where it came in the ministry of Christ, uh, whether all the disciples were included at that time in their listing or not. One very significant fact is that the greatest and earliest and lengthiest sermon that Jesus Christ ever preached was a message not to the multitude but to the disciples. What message is that? Do you know what it is? How many? How many know what it is? What is it? Sermon on the Mount. Now, you can picture this mass of people following the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible, as we, as we think of it, we, we can, I, I've, I've heard this. In fact, you've seen it, haven't you? Uh, in some of those Hollywood productions uh, where they're trying to mess up another Bible story. And uh, what they... What they do is, you know, they gather these thousands of people on the hillside and Christ stands up in a loud, booming voice and says, Blessed, you know, in this great, massive voice, blessed are the poor in spirit and so on and so forth. That's not the way it happened. Look at it, if you will. Matthew chapter 5. It says this. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, who did he teach? The disciples. This was not a message to this mass group of people. They were simply the audience. They were simply there observing the disciples were the emphasis of the Lord Jesus. When the Lord said all of these things, he was saying them directly to his disciples. And it goes on through the fifth chapter, through the sixth chapter, through the seventh chapter, and look at what happens. Verse 28, it came to, of the uh, seventh chapter. It came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now all they got was the fallout of this message. But in spite of the fact that it was intended for the disciples, it had a great effect on the multitudes who heard. I, I want to draw a principle from that. I think that one of the big mistakes that we make a lot of times, and I'm not sure how we can correct it, but I think one of the mistakes we make is that we do not allow enough, enough people to observe what we are doing when we deal with individuals. And we get the idea and, uh, that dealing with individuals is something you do in private. That's not necessarily true. I, of course, had the privilege of uh, going to the Institute in Basic Youth Conflicts in the first session that Bill had outside of the Midwest area uh, in Seattle. And there were 35 of us in that group, and um, we had the privilege of interfacing with Bill Gothard and uh, uh, really uh, got to know him very well. Well, the next session was a little larger, and it was here that we began to see Bill really shine. Because, you know, the, the learning that I got from Bill Gothard was not so much the seminar material. But after he would speak at the break time, he would stand there 
and people would gather around. One person would walk up and ask a question, and Bill would deal with him on the spot, and everybody would gain from it. And I used to look forward to the breaks much more than the seminar, simply because with a hundred people standing around, he would deal with one individual. And with that incisive way of dealing with problems and so on, he would just absolutely slice through the veneer and reach the need of the individual. And many, many times in those early days of the seminar where uh, we, we were able to see in that short 15, 20-minute time, see a person come to Jesus Christ, see another person come to victory in his life, see another person change their mind about uh, getting a divorce, and uh, a thousand other problems. It was fantastic. I wouldn't have missed those sessions for anything in all the world. And uh, then, of course, you know, as the seminar grew, those crowds down there got bigger and bigger and bigger. And pretty soon you're standing on the outside looking in. You can no longer even hear what Bill was saying to that guy that happened to get to him first. And that's really too bad. In fact, uh, I think one of the tragedies of the growth of the seminar has been that that personal touch has been largely lost. But what I'm saying to you is this. There's a great deal to be learned in that kind of a situation. And unfortunately, we don't do enough of it. You Don't be afraid to take a few friends along with you. Just to sit and to learn as you deal with that person. He needs fellowship anyway. And it gives you an opportunity to allow others to listen in and thereby learn from it. Well now, the, the concept then is that this was to the disciples. 33 times in the Gospel of Matthew alone, the multitudes are mentioned. That word, multitude. But as you study those 33 passages, here's what you discover. Most of them, the Lord was either leaving the multitudes, getting away from them, <laughs> trying to lose them, going into a ship so he could leave the multitudes and go to the other side. The multitudes found him on the other side. He went up into a mountain to pray and the multitudes found him. He was always trying to get away from the multitudes so that he might have time alone with his disciples. Now a typical sequence is Luke chapter 9. Let's just look at that. And again, that is somewhat superficial. There's a great deal more, many, many passages we could turn to to show this. But let's look at Luke chapter 9 and verse 10. Let's begin in verse 10. The the apostles, when they were returned, that is, having been sent out to minister, when they were returned, told him all that they had done. And he took them, now notice, and went aside privately into a desert place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. And the people, when they knew it, followed him, and he received them, and spoke unto them of the kingdom of God, and healed them that had need of healing. And when the day began to wear away, then came the twelve, and said unto him, Send the multitude away, that they may go into the towns round about, and lodge, and get provisions, for we are here in a desert place. In this case, the Lord Jesus Christ uh, fed them, and uh, the feeding of the five thousand was the result. Now you notice, he started out by trying to get privately with his disciples, but the multitudes pressed. As a result, he met their need. Now there are so many places where the multitudes are mentioned, where the Lord Jesus Christ is doing exactly this. They came to him in spite of the fact that he was trying to get alone with his disciples. Matthew chapter 8 and 9 is a passage where we have a number of, of uh, contacts that the Lord Jesus Christ had with individuals. Now, remember that he met the needs of the twelve, but then he had these special contacts. We won't go into any detail on this, but in chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, he dealt with a leper, an individual. In chapter 8, verses 5 through 13, he dealt with a centurion. Great story of how he dealt with this Roman centurion and the faith of this man. And then in chapter 8, verses 14 through 17, he dealt with the sickness of Peter's mother-in-law and some others then that gathered round as he met individual needs by healing them. And uh, then in chapter 8, verses 18 through 22, there were two individuals, two potential disciples that he kind of screened there. 
One said, I want to follow you. He was a scribe. The Lord said, foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests. Son of man hath not where to lay his head. He lost one recruit there. Next fellow said, I want to follow you, but I've got to first bury my father. You know that story. And uh, Christ said, let the dead bury the dead. Again, he lost a candidate. But he dealt with them as individuals. Then, in chapter 8, verses 28 to 34, he dealt with the maniac of the Gadarenes. Again, as an individual. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, he dealt with the paralytic man. Again, met that need. Then he walks up to a man by the name of Matthew. He was a toll taker. He was a tax collector. And he called Matthew in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. And in chapter 9, verse 27 to 35, he dealt with two blind men and a demonic. Again, dealing with individuals. Now, it wasn't that he didn't care for the multitudes. Because you remember that in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, he said that the, the multitudes, that he, he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion because they were sheep that were scattered abroad with no shepherd. And he said, pray the Lord of the harvest. They would send forth labors into his harvest. It wasn't that he didn't care for them. He wanted to meet their need. But the emphasis of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ was upon the individual. You go through the Gospels. You find John chapter 4 as an example, the woman at the well. You find her, him dealing with her, an individual. The result of that individual contact was all the men of the city of Sychar came out and he ministered to them. He saw that as important as well. Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19, just before the triumphal entry, was an individual that the Lord dealt with. Mary and Martha and Lazarus, you remember he dealt with them as individuals. There was a special attachment, a special love. We have that story in Luke chapter 10 where he dealt with Mary and then Martha complained because Mary wasn't helping. And he turns to Martha and he deals with her as an individual. Mark chapter 10 is one of the moving, gripping stories in the New Testament, the story of the rich young ruler. Christ, looking on him, loved him. But the man went away, having great possessions, not willing to meet the cost of following the Lord Jesus Christ. He met the needs of these people as individuals. Now, perhaps most significant of all was the fact that Peter and James and John were in this inner circle of the disciples. You remember that these three were invited alone to come into the room as Jesus Christ raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. They were together at the transfiguration. We have that recorded in the Synoptic Gospels. They were alone together in the garden, Peter and James and John. It was the private questioning of these three, Peter and James and John and Andrew, that invoked the Lord Jesus Christ to give another one of his great messages, a lengthy message called the Olivet Discourse, recorded for us in the 13th chapter of the Gospel of Mark. These individuals were sort of the inner circle. And uh, they were the, the trio that the Lord saw as, as in some way key. Now, it's fascinating to, to discover how these men were used in the ministry in the early church. James was martyred early. Herod beheaded him with a sword. Peter was the one who had the greatest dominance in the first 13 chapters of the book of Acts. After that, we don't hear much more about Peter. Tradition says that uh, he was crucified and refusing to be crucified in the same manner as the Lord. He... Uh, chose to be crucified upside down rather than, than duplicate that which had been done to Christ. That's tradition, not, bio, not the Bible. It's extra-biblical sources. John didn't come to the fore until the late part of the first century. John, of course, suffered in the Isle of Patmos and uh, was greatly used of God to clarify the message for the church, particularly the eschatological message in the book of Revelation, 
the message concerning the Gnostic cult in in the writing of 1 John, the clearing up of uh, some concepts of church uh, function in 2nd and 3rd John, and of course his gospel, which is the the, the gospel that emphasizes the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't it fascinating that within that inner circle there was such a wide range? You would expect, uh, wouldn't you, that Peter would be emphasized in one part of the book of Acts and that James would be emphasized in another part of the book of Acts and John would be in there punching in the last part of the book of Acts and, and uh, these men would have, because they were part of the inner circle. All James had to do was lose his head. See? And yet, he was a part of that inner circle. It just, it's hard to understand because we think in terms of success by how much a man accomplishes rather than looking at, in, looking at it from God's viewpoint where what we accomplish is not the important thing but being faithful is. And so therefore, remember that Christ in interviewing Peter after his resurrection, he said, Peter, you just be faithful in doing what I tell you to do. You don't worry about John. And that was always the emphasis. So don't expect that when you disciple people to Christ that everyone is going to produce in the same way that someone else will. Remember, they're still individuals. Then too, there was the individual dealing with particularly Peter and John. Peter and John were sent to prepare the Passover as a group of two. Peter was singled out on numerous occasions. A good example is at Caesarea Philippi in the 16th chapter of Matthew, where you'll recall uh, Christ said, uh, Peter, whom do men, or he said to the disciples, whom do men say that I am? And uh, then they, Peter spoke up and said, they say, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah returned from the dead, and so on. And then the Lord said, who do you say that I am? And right away Peter answered, thou art the Christ. Son of the living God, blessed art thou, Peter Bar-Jonah. Flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. And Peter, listen, thou art a little piece of stone, but upon this massive rock, which is the confession that he had made, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now I must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of Peter says, be it far from you, Lord. And Christ turned to Peter and said, get thee behind me, Satan. Thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things of men. Peter singled out. One moment commended, another moment condemned. But Christ is dealing with this man. Why? Because it's the making of a man of God. He's building into his life. Now learn from this, will you? These things will come up as we go along, but learn from this. When we deal with a person in discipling them to Christ, there's a time to say, you're doing great. There's a time to say, you blew it. There's a time to zero in on the, on the need of the life, as well as a time to give encouragement. Learn to have balance as you deal with people. All right. The matter of John was something else again. John was called the disciple whom Jesus loved. In John chapter 13, verse 23, you remember, he's called the disciple that Jesus loved, and it said that he laid his, his head in the bosom of Jesus Christ there in the upper room. John chapter 19, verse 26, chapter 20, verse 2, three places in chapter 21, uh, verse 7, verse 20, and then verse 24 kind of sews it up by telling us that this is John that we're talking about in these places. So John was the one that Jesus Christ had a special love for. Now, remember, John was probably just a teenager. He was the youngest of the bunch. And this may have been why Christ gave him that tender care and that personal relationship. Christ's heart went out to this young man that was such a faithful follower of him. He was the one that stood close by the cross and, of course, was a sign the mother of the Lord Jesus. So the emphasis and the concentration the ministry of Christ was upon the individual, the inner core of the disciples, upon personal contacts with individuals, 
and finally upon the masses. He met the need of all of them, but his concentration point was in the center. And the same thing must be true of us as to our concentration today. Gary Kuhn says this, and I quote this in closing. Early in his ministry, Christ chose a core of men and began to pour his life into them. His purpose was to create the leadership necessary to adequately oversee the growth of the early church. In a real sense, Christ staked his entire future effectiveness on these few men. We ought to be willing to do the same. Let's, as we are going, be discipling men. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for these insights into your word tonight. We know that we're just beginning to scratch the surface, prepare the way, preparing our own hearts and lives for that which you want us to do. We pray as we build a repertoire of tools that can be used, that we will then be willing to lay our life on the line and be involved in the individual discipleship of men. Help us, Lord, to concentrate our attention upon building into the lives of others so that we might see reproduction of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grant to us some real help and guidance in this regard. And we pray that Jesus Christ, our wonderful Lord, will be exalted and glorified and will praise you for it in Christ's precious name. Amen. Lord bless you. Good night.